driven, dedicated, passionate. These are some of the qualities we tend to associate with success. To succeed, uh, you have to pursue your goal all in. can't take no for an answer. But that has its limits, and eventually life will teach you a lesson. Sometimes you have to know when to stop. Sometimes you'll, you'll do more harm than good by pushing it or pursuing some goal. This proves true in many areas. Take sports, for example. There's a ton of pressure on athletes to win, sometimes at all costs. They're taught no pain, no gain, no guts, no glory. And sometimes you can play through the pain, but other times you need to know when to stop. You're going to be doing more harm than good and detracting from your long-term goal by continuing. Say a soccer player takes a brutal blow to the shins and gets a little stress fracture. Well, that player needs to stop. Should not keep playing on that. We'll risk further injury, something like a compound fracture, and that could be career-ending. It's time to stop. Same goes for racing. A race car driver driving ag- aggressively, trying to catch up to the leaders of the pack, but he's having engine trouble. His engine's redlining. If he stays too long in that red zone, if he pushes the engine too hard, he risks catastrophic engine failure, a, a piston blowing out, and then his-, his race is over for a long time. You get the idea. I'm sure you all get the importance of knowing when to stop. But I bet you've never thought of applying this principle to evangelism. Can you ever evangelize too much? Would there ever be a time to quit evangelizing? Is there a time to stop sharing the gospel? That is an intriguing question. Is there such a thing as a red line in evangelism? Most people drive under normal conditions. They never really get close to redlining their car. And likewise, most Christians don't really need to worry about a red line in evangelism. They just need to get out there and share the gospel more. But there is a type of red line in evangelism. And under certain conditions, you you may encounter it. You can stay there a little while, just like with your car. You can drive in the red zone. But if you stay there too long, the situation can become unhelpful, even harmful. And you may end up doing more harm than good. And so what is this red line in evangelism? How do you know when to stop talking to someone? When to pull out of a gospel conversation? When, when do you take your seed and scatter them on another field? This may not happen too often, but then again, as this world becomes increasingly hostile to Christianity, it, it might. So real wisdom is needed to know how, how do we conduct ourselves in ministering the gospel. This is something the Lord Jesus felt needed to be addressed. Jesus knew his disciples needed at least some guidance on when to stop evangelizing, when to take the message to those who are willing to hear. This guidance comes today from our text in Matthew chapter 7. So take your Bibles, open them there. Once again, Matthew chapter 7. This is the last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. And here Jesus has a lot to say about how we relate to various groups Last week, we considered verses 1 through 5, learning how we relate to other brothers in the faith, specifically in the context of of sin and judgment. There's an important text on judgment. And just for the sake of context, let's read that again. Matthew 7, 1 through 5 to begin. It's where Jesus says, Do not judge, so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, 
Behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We're not going to spend a lot of time rehashing these verses, but suffice it to say, we found that Jesus is not universally forbidding all types of judgment in this passage. He's rather forbidding a type of hypocritical judgment. This is the type of self-righteous, harsh, unforgiving condemnation that characterized the scribes and Pharisees. That we in the church must still deal with sin, but we are to do so graciously, gently, compassionately, knowing we are sinners too. And so in practice, we're told to judge ourselves first. Take the log out of your own eye first. We're so easily bothered by the sins of others, but we should be just as, not, uh, just as much bothered by our own sin first. Deal with your own sin first. Only then will you truly be able to help your brother deal with his sin, which is something you need to do. But you judge yourself first, that'll enable you to deal with your brother graciously, gently. Now, there's more to it. That was our subject last week. You might say judging brothers the right and the wrong way to do that. Now, we get to this text this morning, just verse 6. And verse 6 can seem like it's out of place, like it's this standalone little verse that has no context. It's not quite the case. Let's read the next verse now. Verse 6, Jesus says, Do not give what is holy to dogs. And do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Jesus is making a distinct point in this verse, but it is related to the theme of judgment from verses 1 through 5. One key difference is the object of that judgment has changed now from brothers to others. We're no longer dealing with brothers or sisters in the church, but with those whom Jesus deems dogs and pigs. Now, clearly this requires some judgment of discernment. We are to identify who are these dogs and pigs, those who've crossed some red line. And then we're told to treat them differently. We are not to give them what is holy. Now, obviously this comes with tons of questions. And this one little verse has massive practical implications. And that's why I wanted to treat it separately. Both we have less time today being a communion Sunday and also to have squeeze verse six in with verses one through five would have robbed from them both. This verse has enough gravity to be dealt with on its own. That's what we're going to do. Some people have created a sentimental caricature of Jesus and they just can't imagine him ever saying something like this, referring to people as dogs and swine. They have a hard time explaining this verse, but but here it is. We too, though, we want to know, like, what does he mean by this? What what does he mean? And what is he telling us to do? It's just one verse, but there's surprisingly a lot to cover. So let's get into it. Very simple outline that the old school will go with a a type of who, what, where, when, why with this thing. Just uh, five questions just to help us understand and apply this key verse, this unique verse, Matthew 7, 6. These five questions simply to help us understand and apply this verse. We'll keep the outline as simple as can be. Spend our time in the text. So a first question for you. We need to figure this thing out. Who are the dogs and pigs? Right? This is just a a unique verse. Who is Jesus talking about? Who are the dogs and the pigs in this verse? Again, verse 6. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine. Or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. 
So our first order of business has to be to try and identify, like, who is he talking about with this reference to dogs and swine? He is definitely speaking metaphorically here. He just finished speaking metaphorically. He's talking about someone with a log in their eye. That, that is not physically possible. That, that is a picture. It's a metaphor. Also, if Jesus was speaking metaphorically in verse 6, this would be the most pointless verse maybe in the whole Bible. Because this is something a Jew would never do. They would never take what is holy and throw it to a dog. They would never take a pearl and cast it before swine. These were already unthinkable actions. Clearly, he means something more by them. They don't need to be told this. No, but rather, throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been using colorful, figurative language, taking things known and using them to explain the unknown, like he always does. And that's what he's doing here. This verse is not about feeding dogs and pigs. He is talking about people. And as we highlighted last week, Jesus has a long history of comparing people to animals to say something about them. And so on many occasions, believers are likened to sheep, unbelievers to goats, false teachers, worse yet, are wolves. Herod was a fox. The scribes and Pharisees, uh, Pharisees are serpents. Satan, a roaring lion. Here, though, we want to know who are the dogs and pigs. Now, to answer this question, you have to know what people back then would have thought of dogs and pigs, what would have come to their mind. And you cannot assume it's the same today. In fact, it wasn't the same as we think of dogs, especially dogs today. Today, starting with dogs, how do we think of dogs? As pets, you're all, you're all smiling already. Like, as just pets, as helpers, as man's best friend. I mean, you mentioned dogs to people, it evokes warm images like, like a loyal golden retriever, an excited lab, a cute Pomeranian. But that is definitely not how they thought of dogs in the ancient Near East. You know, most dogs back then, they were not domesticated. They were still wild, really vicious beasts. You know, Africa is still home to packs of actual wild dogs. They're, they're a step below wolves, but they're still dangerous. And being smaller, they're more scavengers than hunters. But in the ancient world especially, they would roam cities and dumps, battlefields, eating whatever they could. And literally, whatever they could. You might recall it was a pack of wild dogs who completely devoured the wicked queen Jezebel. Dogs, they were not clean, they were not groomed, they were mangy, they were snarling, often diseased. For this reason, dogs were despised. Like how you think of raccoons today is how they thought of dogs. They were filthy, they were unclean, they were unreasoning, they were beasts. And you get a pretty similar picture for swine. Some people have attempted to domesticate pigs, but they're still a pretty filthy animal. This is more so for the, the wild, the feral hog. Like dogs, they would forage in the wild, often in dumps. And they're eating anything, eating refuse. They were the picture of uncleanness. And today, we, when you think of a pig, you probably think of food. We think of delicious food. <laughs> but you recall that the Jews would not think of pigs as food. Pigs were off the menu for the Jews. They were nothing but an unholy, unclean Filthy animal. That's all they were to the Jews. And so already you can tell that dogs and pigs did not have a good reputation back then. They evoked purely negative images and responses from people. And that already is going to inform a little bit about what it means to call someone a dog or a pig. Right? So with that in mind, what, what does it mean to reference someone, to liken someone to a dog or a pig back in Christ's day? 
These are clearly terms of contempt, derision, disdain. This is not speaking of your average run-of-the-mill believer, or unbeliever, I should say. These terms seem to be reserved for a special class. All people are sinners, but dogs and pigs would picture the worst of the worst. There's a level of defilement and uncleanness, plus a viciousness, a shamelessness in their depravity. This would speak of the person who is who has abandoned all restraint, all remorse in their evil deeds. They become brazen and brash in their indecency. You know, the thing about dogs and pigs is that they're not apologetic over their natures, their repulsive natures. When dogs return to their own vomit, they don't feel bad about it. They don't apologize. It doesn't plague their conscience. They delight in it. Pigs are not overcome with guilt and remorse when they wallow in their own mire, a combination of mud and their own excrement. No, to them, because of their nature, it's a joy. Like All people are sinners, but to liken someone to a dog or a pig back then, you're talking about someone who's hardened in heart, calloused in conscience, steeped in sin, unremorseful in unrepentance and unrighteousness, elated in evil. This understanding is only confirmed when you see where else in Scripture people are likened to dogs and pigs. We give you a few references. Philippians 3.2, Paul says, Beware the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. He uses dogs there. The same term to refer to the Judaizers, which were a hardened group of false teachers who were trying to, to draw the people back to a, a false religion of works. What about Revelation 22.15? One of the last, nearly the last verse in the Bible. Revelation 22.15 says, Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. This is a list you don't want to be on. This is one of the final lists or this is the final list of those who are excluded from the eternal kingdom. And you'll notice this not just talking about those who practice evil, they love, they love it. These are the dogs. They're those who have rejected Christ and embraced sin with great zeal. And then we won't turn there for the sake of time, but you have the whole chapter of 2 Peter 2. Like the whole chapter. This is where he's sternly warning against false believers and false teachers. How does Peter describe these people? I'll read some for you. He says in verse 10, they indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. He says, verse 12, they are like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed. Verse 13, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Their stains and blemishes. Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. Their hearts are trained in greed. They are accursed children. That's all. Those are all Peter's words talking about these people. It's a picture of unchecked depravity, unhinged immorality. The kicker, though, he's talking about people who all once profess Christ. These people all once claim to be believers. But they have turned away from him, not just turning away. It's not like they just stopped believing, but they have turned all the way away that there's a hate, there's a scorn now for the Lord. And so Peter says this of them, this is 2 Peter 2, 21, 22, near the end. He says of them, for it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it 
to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. There, there it is, dogs and pigs. They're completely hardened, depraved, unreasoning souls. They know the truth. They have passionately turned against it. They now have a disdain for the Lord. And this is why Jesus is giving such people a title of disdain. Dogs, swine. That's not the end of it. You have to keep in mind in our text, the identity of these dogs and pigs is intertwined with their action, namely in rejecting that which is holy. And so we need to answer the next question before we can fully identify who these people are. So here's the second question. What are the holy objects and pearls that Jesus is talking about here? What are these holy objects and then the pearls that are being given to the dogs and pigs? And one more time, verse 6. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine. Or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. And so now we want to know what are these objects of which we are to refrain from giving to people who are acting like these dogs and pigs. He's still speaking metaphorically. So to understand this picture, we need to discover, again, what would have come to their mind when he's referencing what is holy and pearls. What clues do we have? Let's start with what is holy or literally the holy. Now, the Jews, they were accustomed to holy objects. They had a lot of them. You think of the temple lampstand, the utensils, the garments of the priests. There's a long list of the holy or things holy, holy objects. But it really makes no sense to speak of throwing any of those things to dogs. There's really only one holy object that would even make sense in a context of throwing it to a dog. And that would be meat. Talking about the meat used in sacrifices. It has become now a holy object. When animals were sacrificed, a portion of the meat would be burned on the altar. But the rest was given to the priests and their family. That was their food. This portion, though, was now seen as holy. This was no longer common meat. This was now consecrated meat. And so on the surface, Jesus seems to be warning against throwing consecrated meat to wild dogs. Now, again, this, is, this would have already been unthinkable to the Jews reminding us he means something more by this saying. The same applies to this picture of throwing pearls before swine. Pigs commonly fed on peas, acorns. Over in Luke 15, you see the prodigal son story, and he's off in his low point. He's hired out to feed pigs. He's feeding them pods, it says. It would have been pods of the carob tree. They, They resemble pea pods, but they're bigger, they're darker. But if you were to toss a pearl to a pig, it it would instinctively think it's food because it looks close enough to a pea. And it would bite down on it and have a rude awakening. This, this is not food. But it goes without saying, no one would ever do this. No one would ever take something so valuable and just toss it away. Or more, more so, something so precious and give it to a, an unclean animal to devour. You would never think of doing this. Would you ever take off your wedding ring and use it to play fetch with your dog? You, you never even thought about doing that. And so it goes with what Jesus is saying. So what does he mean by these images? You can see how these two phrases are used in parallel in verse 6. This is very classic Hebrew parallelism, which is all about saying the same thing twice in two different ways. But they mean the same thing. 
That means what's true for one will be true for the other. And with this in mind, the, the object of pearls is especially helpful as we're trying to interpret this passage because there is some other context for what he likely means by these pearls. In the writings of ancient Jews, pearls were often used as a symbol for teaching. They referenced precious or special teachings. We still today sometimes might speak of a pearl of wisdom. Jesus seemingly picks up on this in Matthew 13 in his parables. He compares the kingdom to pearls, to fine pearls. Pearls in Matthew 13 refer to the message of the kingdom. The teaching of salvation. Also over in Matthew 10, it provides a very significant parallel for this verse. We'll turn to it later. It's where Jesus sends the disciples out to preach. And they're going to be living out this passage, what it looks like to not cast your pearls before swine. But recall in that passage, what's their mission? What are they being sent out to do? To preach, to offer the message of the kingdom to people. See how they respond. I think it's enough for us to accept just the traditional long-standing interpretation of Matthew 7, 6. That Jesus here is giving us a metaphor of withholding the message of the kingdom from certain people. We are to refrain from giving the precious gospel of the kingdom to those who disdain it like dogs and pigs. There is a time to stop evangelizing certain people and move on. According to this verse. So you're probably wondering, how how could that be? Why would we ever stop giving someone the gospel message? I mean, don't they need it more? Isn't that the whole point of evangelism? Everyone is a lost sinner. Everyone needs the gospel message. Why would we now like withhold it from them? It's their only hope. Now, we certainly don't deny that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It is, is the power of God for salvation. God works through the preaching of his word. We must scatter the seed over every field, of course. But certain people, as they prove themselves to be dogs and pigs in their response, they show contempt for the message. You can't argue Jesus is telling us here now to refrain. And for a reason. There's more here. Let's keep digging. A third question, a why. Why should you not give what is holy to dogs? Why should you not give what is holy to dogs? He provides an explanation for his words. There's really two explanations for why he would tell us something like this. The first is that dogs and pigs will trample the message. They're going to trample the message. They have no appreciation for the royal diadem of the gospel. They place no value on holy things, and so you should not give holy things to them. From precious pearls to sacred sacrifices, dogs and pigs have no regard for things holy. A dog cannot tell between sacred meat and rotten meat. It's just meat is meat. It will eat. They have no reverence for spiritual things. And so don't throw meat at them, not not because they won't eat it, but because they will defile it. They will profane it. They're going to take that which is holy and desecrate it. They're going to tear apart the good news of Christ, slander it, malign it, trash it, spit on it. Likewise, pigs can't tell the difference between peas and pearls. They have no appreciation for what's different about these two, that which is precious and distinct. Pearls deserve to be cherished and preserved. 
But pigs don't know better. They have no value to them. They just want slop. So when they bite into a pearl, that they quickly realize it's not food. They feel the sharp pain in their jaws. They just bit down on something rock hard. And they spit it out. And in disdain, they will trample it underfoot and bury it. They'll stomp on the message of Christ, drag it through the mud. This is how some in the world react when presented with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've so fully given themselves over to the darkness that they hate the light. And just the tiniest glimmer of light makes them rush at it to put it out. They can't stand any light. And so when they realize you're about to tell them about the Lord or you've told them about the Lord, that they don't want to hear it. They want to silence the message and the messenger. They'll trample the message. It doesn't suffice for them to say like, oh, you know, that's not for me or I don't believe this. I'm not convinced. No, that's not enough. They have to go further and show a contempt, a disdain for Christianity. It's like the Jewish leaders looking at Jesus as he hangs on the cross. It wasn't enough for them that they succeeded. They crucified him. They got what they wanted. That wasn't enough. They had to show up and they're hurling abuse and insult at him. They're reviling him as he hangs there. They had to rub salt in the wound. Likewise, some will insult Christ with no restraint when they just catch a glimpse of the pearl of his kingdom. Now, Jesus presents a second reason not to give what is holy to dogs. First, they will trample the message. Second, they will trounce the messenger. But there is an element of personal well-being here. Dogs in the ancient world were vicious scavengers, and they were told, don't, don't feed them. Don't feed these scavengers, because they will take a liking to you. They'll trust you for food. And when you run out of food, you're the food. And this still happens today. I remember reading the city of Moscow still. It's home to the biggest wild dog population. Some 35,000 wild dogs roam Moscow, even taking the subway. Some have formed into packs. And each year, several people are mauled to death by these wild dogs. It still happens. A wild dog will turn on you. And pigs can be surprisingly deadly as well. Feral pigs, especially in a herd, are, are a threat. If they find reason to charge you, it can be extremely swift, knock you to your feet, and then if they've got sharp hooves or tusks, they will tear you to shreds. And this, too, still happens. There's been reports of this in Texas where the feral hog population is out of control. And if you're going to throw them a hard pearl when they're expecting a soft pea, you just might give them reason to charge you. That's the point here. The second reason you're not to throw pearls at them is that they're going to turn on you. Some will quickly take their contempt for Christ out on you. After they reject the Lord, they're going to shoot the messenger. They're going to unleash their hatred for what is holy on you. Now, hopefully you can start seeing the Lord's concern here that there should be a reverence for the precious message of the gospel such that it should be protected from those who are at the point of trying to repudiate it, malign it, slander it, blaspheme it. In addition, the Lord wants to see his gospel messengers preserved from senseless harm. Like we all know, there may be a time we can't escape harm for the gospel. So be it. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness That's fine. But we are never told to rush into such persecution headlong. Now, hopefully by now you get a a better sense of what Jesus is teaching in this verse. Still, what he says must be very carefully, very cautiously applied. We need great wisdom to to live out this verse. 
to help with that, it'd be extremely beneficial to see how it was actually put into practice. Are there examples of this verse being put into practice? There are many in the New Testament, and this will help us gain further understanding. So let's now ask a where question. Number four, where else was this principle applied? Or where else was this verse applied? This verse is not directly referenced elsewhere in the New Testament, but its teaching most certainly is. There there are several occasions where we see what Jesus is teaching here, played out, lived out. And by observing these passages, we gain further insight as to how we would be applying it as well. So I want to show you some of these. Now you can turn to Matthew chapter 10. Just flip the page over, Matthew chapter 10. It's where Jesus summons the 12 disciples. He's going to send them out on a mission. What kind of mission is this? This is a preaching mission, an evangelistic mission. They're going to go out and preach the kingdom. Verse 7. He says, as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is an evangelistic mission. He also enables them to work signs and wonders to authenticate them as being God's messengers. All right, there's more to it, but I want you to look down at verses 11 through 15. He says in verse 11, In whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it, and stay at his house until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. You can see how a judgment of discernment is being exercised here. That as they go preaching, they're going to find some houses that are not worthy of their blessing of peace. How are they to identify such houses? It's not arbitrary. He says, whoever does not receive you nor heed your words. Which is to say, whoever rejects the message and the messenger. Right? Like dogs and pigs, they trample the message, they trounce the messenger. That's how they respond. Therefore, the disciples are to reject that house. And shake the dust off their feet, which was an ancient sign of judgment, of rejection. Because those who reject and scorn the message of life, they're going to have a harsher judgment than those in Sodom and Gomorrah. You can also turn to Acts 13. For another example, you see the Apostle Paul living out this principle of not casting pearls before swine several times on his missionary journeys. Here he's on his first missionary journey. He gets to Antioch. He preaches the gospel to Jews in the synagogue, and it causes quite a stir such that by the next Sabbath, it's like the whole town is gathered to hear Paul speak. And it says this, Acts 13, 45, 46. Acts 13, 45. It says, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, but since you repudiate it 
and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. This is exactly what Jesus means in this passage. They went, they preached, they scattered the seed on every field. But these Jews turned a corner, they crossed some red lines. They're the ones who start repudiating the message. They're the ones who start blaspheming Christ. They are the ones who judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. And so it's time to move on. It's time to go to the Gentiles. That's what Paul does again and again. The Gentiles were very happy about this. It says they glorified God. The remaining Jews, not happy. So it says they stirred up opposition. They drove Paul and Barnabas out of town. And so what did Paul and Barnabas do at that point? Did they say, I don't even care. We're going back in this city. We're going to shove this gospel message down their throats. That's not what it says. Verse 51, it says, they shook the dust off their feet and went to Iconium. Isn't it interesting how Paul, above all people, as bold as he was, he knew when it's time to go. It's time to not overstay your welcome. This, this field is closed. It's time to go to an open field ready for harvest. It's, it's no longer time to cast these pearls before swine. This happened to Paul again on his second missionary journey, Acts 18. Acts 18, verse 6. He's now in Corinth. Paul was testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. One verse here, Acts 18, 6. It says, but when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. There are many examples of this. It's just more of the same. So what did we learn from the examples of Paul and the apostles and the teaching of Jesus? There is a time to quit, to move on, to not throw what is holy to the dogs and not cast your pearls before swine. This is not an arbitrary distinction. Rather, some, they make it painfully clear in their response to the message, they want nothing to do with it. They understand it, but they hate it and they reject it. They blaspheme the name of God. They revile the name of Christ. They tear down the message. They turn on the messenger. They have judged themselves unworthy. And so it's time to move on to scatter your seed on fields that are ripe for harvest. Now, keep in mind, regarding Paul's example, so long as he had a willing audience, he would stay. He would speak. I'm not even talking about a believing audience, just a willing audience. They're willing to sit, listen, study, contend. He would spend all the time in the world with a willing audience, even if they're unbelievers. He'll go over scripture. He'll answer their questions, their objections. He'll spend all the time in the world with those who want to hear. But when people turned a corner, when they crossed a red line, they got to a point of, they understand the message. They, they get it, but now they, they just hate it. They're spitefully spitting on it. It's time to move on. And we would do well to do the same thing. This is what Jesus is telling us to do. All that's left now for us is to discern exactly when this would apply to us. We'll finish with a, a when question. Number five. When should you apply this principle? When should you apply this principle? And as we bring this verse to application, we've got to make a huge point here. So I hope you understand. You need to listen to this whole message carefully. This is, you want to get this right. But this verse, this principle is never meant to be applied as a prejudgment. I'll explain that. It's never meant to be applied as a prejudgment. Judgment. We are never to judge someone unworthy of the gospel in advance. 
So in other words, we don't employ profiling in evangelism. You might see someone and think, there's no way this person would ever believe. You can tell by their speech, their dress, their music, their politics. Clearly this person hates God and wants nothing to do with him. So you see an opportunity to share Christ with them, but you think, yeah, I don't want to waste my time casting pearls before swine. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's not what this verse means. It's never applied like that. This is not a prejudgment. And we are called to blanket the message of the gospel over all the earth. That's precise. You know, the reason for that is we, we have exceedingly good news to share. We can't withhold it from anyone at the beginning. What news are we talking about? Well, hey, you're in Acts. Go back to Acts 10. Let, let's hear it from Peter. Let's just listen to Peter preach to a group of Gentiles and share them this message of good news. He did not... He, he, in his heart, in his old prejudice, wanted to prejudge them. The Lord had to show him, no more of that. You go take the message even to these Gentile dogs. And the Jews themselves called Gentiles dogs. But Peter preaches, what's this good news? Acts 10, 38. He tells them, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he, both, he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, that they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. Verse 40, God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is, to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people, and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. The, the appointed Savior has come. He's already come. He already died on the cross. He already rose from the dead to pay the full penalty of our sins, to purchase our place in heaven. And if you've not believed in this Savior, do so today. Let your sins be washed away as he grants you this new eternal life. Discover what makes this pearl of great price so precious. And now, like Peter, we are to take the same message and just scatter it over every open field we see. A little bit here, a little bit there. We're here to share the gospel indiscriminately. Sometimes you will have an unfruitful encounter. Meaning we share with someone, there's no results. Share the gospel with a family member, and they don't believe. That does not turn it into a pearls before swine situation. I mean, they, they did not treat you or the message with contempt. They disagreed, but they listened. Sure, that, that might still make them goats, but that does not make them dogs or swine. And so you pray for them, and when the opportunity arises, you share again. You persist. You keep throwing seed on that field. There's no reason not to. But it is a different story we've learned when you have, you might say, a hostile encounter. You share with someone, you discover that this field is not open for business. It is, in fact, paved over. This is a concrete field. They're hardened, and they take it further by showing contempt for the message and or the messenger they evidence a disdain, a vitriol, a maliciousness toward Christ. This is where you might discern you have a pearls 
before swine situation. This person stands self-condemned. They have judged themselves unworthy of anything further. They've proved that they want nothing more to do with the words of life. And there, look, there's other fields for harvest. And so at this point, you're going to grant them their wish. You'll protect the gospel from unnecessary slander and yourself from unnecessary harm. This is what Jesus means. John Calvin writes affirmingly, quote, he says that dogs and swines are names given not to every kind of debauched men or to those who are destitute of the fear of God and of true godliness, but to those who, by clear evidences, have manifested a hardened contempt of God so that their disease appears to be incurable, end quote. And this is true. The disciples, they went to all sorts of homes. Only after they were firmly rejected did they shake the dust off their feet. And Paul went to every synagogue. Only after he was firmly rejected did he move on to the Gentiles. And likewise, we are to share the gospel with everyone we might encounter. It's only after sustained rejection and reproach that we would take our pearls elsewhere. The sad irony with this is that in Christ's day, this verse, this principle seemed to be applied the most to his fellow Jews. It wasn't the pagans and the Gentiles who hated the message of the Messiah. They didn't always believe, but, you know, to each his own. But it was his fellow Jews, his own people, the proud, self-righteous, hard-hearted Jews who clung to a form of religion but denied its power. They're the ones who proved themselves to be unworthy of the kingdom. And in a similar manner, in a similar heartbreaking manner, I think today this verse is going to find its, its most frequent application with those who were raised in the church. There are many who had Christian upbringings. They professed Christ. They got baptized. They were never born again. They're part of a Christian culture, but they're never actually born again. But inevitably, what happens? Maybe they get burned by the church, mistreated. They're disturbed by some scandal. Or maybe they're just allured by the world. Something rocked their faith and they fell away, but they didn't just fall away. They're now embittered. They're bitter against Christ. They have the greatest contempt for Christianity. I'm sure you know examples and people like this. My mind goes to someone named Abraham Piper. He's son of famed preacher John Piper. Grew up in the faith, raised in the faith, looked like a model kid. Age 19, he's in serious sin. He gets church disciplined by the church. Justly so, he repents. He's restored and is believing, supporting his uh, ministry in the Father. Four years later, though, he goes fully apostate, turns fully against the Lord, even to this day. He became greatly bitter and angry with the church. And so he's known, even this today, this moment, with a huge following on TikTok and social media, posting videos just dragging Christ and the scriptures through the mud. And there's, there's such an anger and a bitterness to him. With extreme prejudice, he seeks to deconstruct the faith he never actually had. But when you have someone who's just, they're in a settled, hardened, harsh rejection like this, and they know the gospel, like this concrete field is covered in seed. So it's not for lack of seed. They know the gospel. There's just, there's no cracks. There's no place for the seed to go. Well, this is when it's time to stop throwing seed on the field and just go somewhere else, move on, take the message to the ends of the earth. I hope what we've covered today brings you some understanding to this challenging verse. We need to pray for the wisdom to carefully and cautiously apply it among those we encounter. For some, this verse in the Sermon on the Mount 
is a bitter pill to swallow. Is that they, they don't want to cut people off. They don't want to lose hope for someone. But don't misunderstand. We are not abandoning hope for such people. We know God. God can still save them. He can still break their rebellion. Likely it will be through suffering. You can get cracks in concrete. Usually it takes a little motion of the earth, a little earthquake, a little suffering, but even concrete can be broken down. Seeds can find their way in. We're going to trust God's sovereign will and power for that and his use, things like suffering. As for us, though, there comes a time where we, we are told to heed the words of the Lord and to discern when it's time to not take this precious seed and continue to throw it any further, where it's trampled underfoot by the wicked. How then are we to relate to such people who have angrily turned away from the faith? Well, we don't fight fire with fire. We're not going to treat them personally with contempt or disdain. We don't hate them. We love our enemies. It's not like we're going around calling people dogs and pigs. This is an illustration. We don't call people that. And there's no glee or excitement in seeing people hand themselves over to judgment. We're, we're We're not rejoicing in this. But in the end, we should still respond like Jesus because Jesus himself applied this verse to the Jews and primarily the the leaders. Their rejection of him was made plain. They they proved it. I mean, despite his ministry, his teaching, his miracles, they still rejected him. And with, with with a hatred, they went so far as to claim his power came from the devil. So much they did not want to have anything to do with him as the Messiah. And so that's why near the end of his ministry, especially in the third year, he turns away from the Jews. He's no longer offering the kingdom to the Jews. He's departing from Jewish lands. He's ministering among the Gentiles or with the 12. He pulls away knowing that their rejection is complete. They're hardened in their rejection. All that's left is for them to crucify him at the appointed time. Even still, even, even though he knows all this, as he approaches Jerusalem on the way to Calvary, and he sees Jerusalem for the first time, how does he respond? He weeps and he prays. And this too should be our response to such people. He knew his people would reject him and crucify him. He knew they were already hardened in unbelief. He knew in consequence, for the time being, all they're going to get is judgment. The temple will be destroyed. Jerusalem will be destroyed. It's It's done. Still, Luke 19, 41, 42, it says this. Luke 19, 41. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. But then he says, But now they have been hidden from your eyes. It's always tragic when we witness people choose sin and rebellion over God and grace. But we need to keep our hearts soft and not cynical toward those who've become cynical about the faith. If you know such people in your life, I mean, you weep over them. You mourn over their rejection. You mourn over their pending judgment. But then you pray. You pray that God would still show them mercy, that he would break them. Pray that he would show compassion on them. He, he can do so. We know no one is worthy of the gospel. No one is worthy of salvation. No one received it by their own merit or goodness. All salvation is by grace. That is very good news because that means that even dogs and pigs can be transformed into sheep as the spirit moves. So you pray for them 
while trusting God's will as it is revealed. And let's pray together. Our Father God, we, we do bow together as a church, hearing your word, hearing your teaching, which challenges us yet instructs us. And uh, immediately our heart thinks of those we know, many in our lives, surely many in this room know, uh, countless more, uh, who might fit this description, those who have turned away from the faith or just turned away from you and turned all the way away such that now there's, there's a darkness inside them. There's, there, there's a level of uh, scorn and contempt for their God, their creator, their savior. There's only one savior. If only they knew the things which make for peace. It's so hard because we know it. We've tasted and seen the Lord is good. His salvation is good. We didn't deserve it either. We so desperately want them to know and receive what we have by grace. We are powerless though. We do not have the power of the spirit to bring anyone to life. We can't raise dead bones. You can. The spirit moves as he wills and we just submit to your will. It's still our heart breaks, we weep, we mourn, and we pray for those in our lives who are, are lost, who are far gone. They've become like dogs and swine. Break them and show them your mercy. There was once someone you did this to, a man named Saul, who proved himself a dog, a swine, even persecuting the church, happily holding the coats of those who stoned Stephen to death. And he did so with great glee. Yet a little while later, Lord, you, you broke him. You, you shook him. You opened, you blinded him that his eyes might be opened. And we pray you, you do the same with our loved ones. As for us, may we be faithful to minister this gospel, to take the seed to all the ends of the earth, just discerning when and where, to entrust uh, the precious pearl of the kingdom to those around us. Give us wisdom and care and caution to apply this verse, yet just let us be those who, who follow Christ and all of his teaching and trusting his will and guidance for our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.